Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Cavalry Audio. My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast. The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? Hello, my fellow survivors. And if you can hear the sound of my voice, it means you're still alive and it is my continued mission to keep it that way. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? I'm your host, Cade Courtley, and today, another amazing guest. Our next guest is a Marine Corps officer, graduate of the United States Naval Academy, a third-generation military aviator who not only has thousands of hours of combat flight ops, but was the very first woman to be selected to join the prestigious Blue Angels. Please welcome Major Katie Higgins Cook. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, going through your bio and prepping for this, we have a lot of stuff that was in common. I thought was really cool. I had a grandfather in the Army Air Corps. I understand you had two. I did, we yep. both came from military families. Your father was also a F-18 pilot. Is that correct? That's correct, yep. We both worked for the Department of the Navy, you as a Marine Corps officer, obviously. I, yep. in high school, I saw Top Gun and I said, that's it. And that and a major influence from my grandfather got my uh, private pods license in high school and was on that road. And I uh, en- ended up injuring my eye in college and found out about the SEAL teams, which I consider kind of a blessing in disguise. But tell me about the influence that had to come from grandparents, a father, and just saying, this is my destiny, I would guess. Yeah. So my grandfather was a huge influence on me, my paternal grandfather. He had three sons, all went to service academies. So you can see that his influence trickled down through the generations. But his family actually came to the United States from Sweden. And so he really instilled in my family this idea of giving back to a country that had given his family so much, you know, they went from basically nothing to upper middle class because he retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And so he's like, you know, we lived the American dream, our family did. And so I wanted to give back because of these ideals that he instilled in me. And so I didn't know if I was going to be a firefighter, a police officer. I even considered the nunnery at one point, but they like frown upon you having children. (laughs) So I decided that, you know, the military was for me. My father went to the Naval Academy. And I I knew that that was one of the paths to get there. And I thought that kind of the best fit for me. And I went in, same thing. I was going to be a Navy jet pilot. I loved Top Gun. That's what my dad did. I was going to follow in his footsteps. 
And throughout my training at the Naval Academy, I actually was like exposed to some really high quality Marine enlisted. Mm -hmm. And I was so impressed by their professionalism, their knowledge when it came to their MOS. And I wanted to lead that, that type of person. And not saying that the Navy doesn't have that. Trust me, my, my brother's actually Navy EOD. He oh, was going to cool. be a pilot too. And he had something with his eyes. And so no he, he was TV. Yeah. So, I mean, it's such a small world when you're saying your story. But yeah, so that's how I ultimately ended up being a Marine. And I wouldn't be here without the influence of my very mili- militaristic family. Did either of your grandfathers get to see you graduate from flight school? Were they still alive during that? Oh, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, they, they were not. But one of my grandfathers did see me go to the Naval Academy. So they knew that I was kind of on that path already. And I have a quick story that I'll tell you. So my grandfather was overhead during Tarawa. And he just saw, you know, unfortunately, the boats getting stuck on the reef and just blood everywhere. He said he, he just remembers like a, a ring of blood around the island. And when I was at the Naval Academy, he was, I don't want you to be a Marine. I don't want you to be a Marine. You know, they make terrible decisions. And that's all he had in his mind was that experience at Tarawa. And he passed before I selected Marine Corps. And I really thought that this was the path I was supposed to be on. But I was so close with him. I was like, I'm going to go against his wishes. And he's gone. And I can't talk to him about it. So his funeral was at Arlington. I'm there. I'm in my midshipman uniform. I'm Mm -hmm. a first class at this point. And we're doing the gun salute. I'm at attention, you know, saluting. And Marine One flies over and lands right next to us. And I still get chills telling the story, but my dad, after it was over, he turns around and he goes, if that's not a sign from Bucky, that's what I call it. If that's not a sign that he's okay with you being a Marine, then I don't know what is. So um, I've had a pretty successful career. That is so cool. We touched on flight school a little bit, but you need to tell the story of your near-death experience in flight school. And it's it's just another example of when you're in a job like this, one second too late, one inch to the right or left, one second too slow can change everything. Please, please share that if you would with us. Sure. Yeah. So i remind you, this is like in primary. Mm-hmm. So I was maybe five or six flights in. I had done like one flight by myself. So I was like a brand new boot pilot, if you will. We were flying formation and we had two T6 Texans. Mm-hmm. So I was in the lead aircraft. My wingman was in, obviously, the parade formation on the left side. We had instructors with us in the back. We were in the front seat. And we were planning on just doing an out and in. That's where you go out to like a small airfield. You get lunch or something and you come back. So you're still doing VFR at this point, right? Visual flight rules and and your limitations on weather and et cetera? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I didn't know how much lingo I could use. Oh, please. And we'll try and spell it out for the folks at home. (laughs) Love the lingo. Yeah, great. Great. Yeah, we were VFR. We were in formation. And, you know, this huge cell, Pensacola, unfortunately, has like a flight school, but terrible weather in the summer. And this huge cell started forming right over Bay Manette, which is where we were trying to go. And then right over Whiting Field, where we were our home station. And so we were like, you know what, we can't really get any good quality training because we have to save VFR. Let's just try to go back. And so we're in parade formation, huge cell in front of us. And my instructor is like, hey, just try to pick through the clouds. You'll be fine. And I'm like, okay, whatever. This is the first time I've even flown around like clouds, right? And so I'm like trying to pick through. And as soon as we get in, like completely socked in, right? Can't see anything. I'm in the clouds. And my instructor says, you know, my controls. I give him the controls because I'm not instrument qualified, so I can't fly. And then he asks me like, hey, can you 
put in the ILS, which is a instrument approach. I don't even know what the hell an ILS is at this point, right? Because I, all I've done is fly VFR. And so I'm like, yeah, sorry, man. I can't, I can't, well, sorry, sir. I can't really help you. Right. And, and he's like, okay. So I see like the screen slipping around because we have a glass cockpit. So I see him doing something. I feel the plane start kind of leaning to the left. Right. And so I look outside because that's all I know how to do right now. And I see a hole. And so I'm like, okay, he's flying towards the hole. That's what he's doing. I was not doing what I'm supposed to do where you're communicating in the aircraft. I was just assuming that's what he was doing. Right. So I'm, I'm, we're going to this plane. And then all of a sudden I, I hear it getting loud and I had done aerobatics right before this and actually oversped the plane because I didn't pull up hard enough on the loop. So I knew what too loud sounded like in the airplane, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I could hear it getting loud again. So I came back in, I was looking at my instruments again. My scan is super slow because I'm a brand new air pilot and I see the altimeter ticking up and then I see the, the speed 300, 310, 320. And this aircraft over speeds at, you know, just over 320. And then as I'm looking outside, all I see are trees. All of a sudden we like break out and I'm like, holy shit. shit. That's, all, that's all I can say is holy shit. And so, well, in my head, I didn't even have time to like verbalize it. Right. And so naturally just instinct, I grabbed the controls. They weren't mine, right? I grabbed the stick, pulled it to my stomach as hard as I could. I later found out that I grayed out my instructor, but I, <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that at the time, but I pulled it into my stomach because that's all I saw were trees. What I also didn't realize is that my wingman was still in formation. And when we broke out and I saw the trees, we were at 30 degrees nose low, 90 degrees angle bay. So when I felt that we were going towards this hole, we were just completely, all of us were disoriented from the clouds, right? And so we broke out, whatever. I pulled into my lap, grayed out my instructor. Luckily, my wingman followed me. And it was the instructor in that aircraft that was flying, followed me as, as we pulled up. When we ended up pulling the black box, the instructor in the second aircraft was at 50 feet above oh. the tree. So we were at 320 knots, you know, 90 degrees angle bank. I ended up pulling 7.6 Gs and over Gene the airplane, just trying to recover. So yeah, it was pretty freaky. And then it wasn't even over. Like we were trying to get back in the airfield. We couldn't get in. It was socked in. So they split up the flight. We tried to get an ILS. They put us in holding. We were running out of gas. I put my, I like literally locked my ejection seat because I thought we were going to run out of gas. It was like the worst day ever of flying, but they got us in the cockpit the next day so that we wouldn't be right. scared. But I can tell you like as soon as we landed and we got out, the other instructor was like, you fucking asshole, like screaming at at, at my instructor, like well, you almost killed all of us. I mean, help so me understand. I've heard of this phenomenon before, but help yeah. me understand how a seasoned instructor completely loses the picture of, okay, I'm diving, I'm accelerating and altitude. Three basic yeah. things. I mean, and, and yeah. altitude is always your friend. I, you know, you learn it if you're yeah. hopping out of a plane under a parachute or whatever. How does that happen? Yeah. Is it just... So a lot of people like rely on the feel of an aircraft, especially if you've done a lot of VFR flying, you're not as comfortable. And my instructor was a 53 pilot for his career. So he's done a lot of, you know, helo flying, not much in the clouds, if you will. And so I think he just, I guess he got the leans is what we call it. He was trying to get a visual reference, which was his safe space, didn't realize it. And he was so overwhelmed. He, you know, he was flying for two airplanes, essentially. He was navigating for two airplanes. He was trying to put the ILS in because I couldn't help. He was talking on the radios and he couldn't do that. So I think he just got kind of overly. So his instincts 
almost killed four people where your instincts saved four people. Well, and I would say part of it is, yes, instinct. Like you're, you're naturally going to try to save yourself when you see trees. Yeah, exactly. You're going to try to save yourself. But I also think it came from just being, it was like a beginner's mind, right? I was looking outside. I thank God I was looking outside and that's all I knew how to do. If I was inside looking at the instruments, hopefully I would have been like, Hey, why the hell are we descending and at a 90 degree angle bank? But because I didn't know, it just happened to work out that I saw the trees first and was able to pull up. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm sure your husband and your three kids are as well. So (laughs) well, well done on that. Let's talk about, so that's early in flight school. Yep. I want to get right into your first combat operation flight in Afghanistan. Yeah. And I'll start by saying thank you because when we were on the ground and we needed help and we were in a nasty situation, having folks like you up above saved so many lives. So thank you. And please share this story if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. On a side note, we shot for Oxblood, which was the SEALs in country a lot. And on a like very quick story, I, I flew the Harvest Hawk, which is a C-130 that has Hellfire and Griffin missiles on it. And they were used to skids or harriers a lot of times because we were like one of one in country. Right. And eventually they started like requesting us because, you know, we could loiter for a very long time and yep. had the munitions that had low CDE, you know, all that stuff. And I was, this is not the story you want me to tell. This is my SEAL story. But <laughs> so we were overhead. There was a three-man team that was running with what we knew was a PKM, but it had been broken down and they were hiding in these bushes along the shoreline. And the seals asked us like, Hey, do you have anything that you could like strafe them with? And we were like, no, we don't have anything, but we were like, we could catch it on fire though. And they were like, yeah, do it. And so we ended up catching the, uh, the stuff on fire there to flush them out. So that's the how did you, find them. But, how'd you do that? Did you guys dump fuel or something like that? Or did you use no, one we, of the hellfires? Uh, we had a height of birth. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So that we, we ended up, it was like dry enough that it caught on fire. But <laughs> yeah, so my very first flight in combat. So I actually was a last minute addition onto my deployment. I wasn't supposed to be there. One of the other pilots ended up getting a heart murmur and they needed someone to fill in last minute. And so I was like, you know, hey, I, I can do it. You know, I don't have a family or anything that I'm I'm worried about leaving behind. I, I wasn't, I didn't have any children at the time. And so I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll totally do it. I this is why I joined the Marine Corps, right? To be able to support those guys on the ground in combat. So as a result, I had never done any live fire, no practices, nothing. And so I went through the whole syllabus basically in country to just try to get spun up as fast as possible to be able to fly this harvest hawk. And so we are overhead in the stack. And again, everybody really likes to use us because we have our hellfires have really low CDE, but can be controlled pretty easily. And we have a very, very long loiter time so we can give the JPEG pretty good essay for over a long period so of time. So real quick, not to stop you there, but explain what you mean by the Hellfire and then a loiter time to our folks out there. Yeah, sorry. So Hellfire is what our munitions that we had. We had a four by Hellfire rack that was on our left wing. And so we could fire those missiles and they were laser controlled. And so we have a a ball laser on on our wing as well. We have a what we call the sled in the back of the C-130 with two fire control officers. And they would be the ones that would target the laser. And then the button, essentially, to allow the missile to come off the rails was in the front with us, with the pilot. And so all of us working together, there was two load masters in the back, plus the fire control officers, plus the two pilots in the front, plus a crew master. So we had a pretty robust crew to be able to 
do this mission set. But yeah, and then a uh, loiter time was, for folks that don't understand yeah, that's so the, basically the ability to stay airborne on station. And how long? Right. What was your loiter time in that? So if we pulled back to max endurance, we could stay up there for thirteen hours, wow. which wasn't awesome because there was only one place in all freaking Afghanistan that you could get the toilet <laughs> like drained. And so, asked, like, if you couldn't get into CAF, or yep. sorry, Kandahar, if you mm-hmm. couldn't get into Kandahar because we had live missiles on the plane, then you couldn't get it mm-hmm. serviced because we were out of Bastion. And so, for like months, nasty shit that was like boiled in oh. Afghanistan heat was back there. And so, you'd get in the mountains and you'd get like this, these bumps, and our SEOs would be like just vomiting in the back. And so, yeah. Not, so, uh, not, yeah, now you understand what it smells like on the ground as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you go past the poop on. Oh, and yeah. oh yeah, and they light yeah. it on fire. Oh, it's yeah. lovely. Yeah, lovely. But anyway, sorry. So, yeah, so that's what loiter time is, is you can, you know, just because we have a lot of fuel and because we are not a jet engine and you can pull back our props, we could stay up for a very long time, so like 13 hours. And so, anyway, this one story, my very first live fire. So we were just kind of doing some mirror for some unit nothing or isr some people call it you know just doing surveillance for people we weren't live fire or anything and then all of a sudden we get a tick and so a tick is a trooping contact and that's like the most severe one right that people are actually being shot at and so we flip over to the frequency and and we're talking to the jtac and you can hear like the tick 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 of the rounds like hitting over the radio i'm like what 26 years old like so i'm pretty young First time I'm going to fire for someone is what my, my mind is saying, you know, like I'm going to, I'm about to like kill somebody for the first time. Right. And on the other side, you're like, these friendly forces are pinned down, you know, they're being shot at. These are people that I joined the military to protect from the air. You know, they have families, they're American citizens, like, holy shit, I can't fail at this. Right. And so ended up being a three man PKM team on the top of a building firing down and there's some RPGs, we heard explosions, we're not really sure what those were, but you know, we didn't have time to kind of discuss it, obviously, with the JTAC, but, and so he gives us the nine line, we are driving in in our attack heading, and because the nine line took so long, we ended up having to do like a 360, and so like, I was diving through the clouds, there was a cloud deck at 13,000 feet, we were trying to shoot at 10, and it was just like, everything was going fucking nuts and i was just trying to get the airplane in the position we ended up doing it two by hellfire and then it just went silent mm, and, and so it was like the longest fucking two minutes of my life because i'm like holy holy cow did we get it are they okay mm-hmm. like what's going on did he get killed you know and so you you don't know what happened and then all of a sudden he comes over the radio and he's like yeah we're good you know like very unformal you know non-formal and you're like holy cow okay well great and in my mind and then you've done this i mean you're a navy seal you guys deal with this stuff all the time but being like you know a a c-130 pilot i fly a big ass airplane that moves stuff around the fact that i was shooting in combat is rare the fact that i was actually employing against the enemy wasn't that common and so it was just like holy shit i i killed people i just killed people Mm -hmm. right and so you're like trying to wrap your mind around this and it ended up not being uncommon we did it a lot the rest of the deployment but it definitely was something to it was an experience that i'll never forget because one i saved people's lives for the first time and i knew that i executed the mission that i joined the military to do but at the same time it was the first time i actually like took somebody's life which was 
interesting too, you know? Well, I mean, yeah, talk about trial by fire, but that's a really great segue into a commonly asked question of people that did the job that you and I did and people in the military, they ask about fear. I always explain the concept of compartmentalization. And if you don't have the ability to do that, you will be ineffective. And I just be curious to hear what your thoughts are on compartmentalization. And then after the fact reflection, which you kind of did about a minute ago. Yeah. So compartmentalization, I'm sure is, is stressed in your community very much. So in ours as well, as soon as you get in that aircraft and you button it up, you know, you close the door, like the only thing that matters is inside that fuselage, right? You, you could be going through a divorce like I was, you know, everyone's issued a ex-husband or an ex-wife, but you, you, you could be going through, yeah, exactly. You could be going through a divorce. You could have a sick kid at home. Your parents could be elderly, whatever. You can have all of these life problems that are huge and valid, but you can't bring them in the aircraft with you because if you do, then your mind is somewhere else and you're putting people at risk. Not only the people in the aircraft with you, but those on the ground that you're supposed to be supporting, right? And so this idea of put those in a box, close the box. Now I'm in my aircraft box and I'm going to only focus on that is something that I feel like it's helped me in my life long-term, even outside of the the airplane. It helps me deal with stress and certain situations that maybe uh, bring up bad memories or something like that. You can put it in the box and close it. Do you worry about that storage unit getting too full in a, oh, yeah. in a long-term <laughs> sort of thing? Because that's a, the other side of it. It works incredibly yeah. well in that environment. And then when you're not in that environment, are you carrying around as a storage oh, unit yeah. maxed out? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and and I think that's why a lot of people who have seen some things that you and I have seen do face PTSD and some of these issues that we've seen. We have unfortunate high suicide rates in veterans. I think a lot of it is because we try to do that. It's been to our head compartmentalized. Don't think about it. Think about other things. And then it just gets overwhelming. And so I think luckily the VA and there, there are a lot of other resources out there for people to be able to handle or finally confront these issues that maybe you put in a box for so long, for sure. Yeah. And then I always thought the crazy thing was you couldn't allow yourself too much time to reflect on what just happened oh, yeah. because that's yeah. like a bad dream. You're like, oh, that, there's yeah. not there's not enough space up here. We did it. We knocked it out of the park. A couple guys got dinged up. Gear up for the next one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I would say reflecting in country would have been kind of detrimental Mm -hmm. to me, I I think, because I would have gotten so caught up in my mind of like second guessing things, because a lot of times we were doing JPEL missions. For those that don't know, those are basically high, high value targets that you're trying to find. So you're relying on other people's intel, like, yep, this is a bad guy, go shoot him, you know, and so you're like, okay, I haven't seen him done anything bad, but I'm going to shoot this guy because apparently he's a bad guy. And so in your mind, you're like, what if this is the wrong dude? Like, what if they're wrong? You know, and so I think I could have just been ineffective if I was constantly reflecting after all these missions, you know? And so once I got home, I definitely had like combat stress and stuff like that, that I had to confront and deal with. But I think I've come to peace with it now that I did the mission that I needed to do and it helped people stay safe on the ground. And those are the people that I joined the military to do that exact mission. Well, I I definitely want to talk about transition a little bit later out, but did you get the opportunity to go to the fun school, Sears school? Yes. Yeah. Weight loss clinic. Wasn't it awesome? I lost 25 pounds that week. (laughs) Yeah. I got like mild hypothermia Uh because I was out in California 
And so they don't give you the cold weather gear like they give yeah, you. Yeah, that's the same one I went to, West Coast. Yeah. And so I got like soaked from walking around and all the dew and shit. And I just froze to death at night because I never dried out because you're either sweating because you're like fucking running or you're covered in dew. Yeah. So I ended up and then I ended up melting my boots, the bottom of my boots on accident because I sat next to my fire so oh. close and the bottom of my boots melted. And so that was a fucking cold and and my feet were just torn up it was bad it for was folks bad. that don't understand uh seer school stands for survive evade resist escape and it's basically for pilots or behind enemy line uh, special ops guys yep. and it's basically you're trained in a very realistic scenario and really great training i think on what yes. to do if you find yourself in a situation where, like i'm on the run i'm separated from my folks yep. my team and you know, I, I'm really good friends with Scott O'Grady, former Air Force pilot, F-16 pilot, yeah. who got shot down, punched out doing 1,200 knots, I think he said, and was on the run for six days in Bosnia. And uh, that's yeah. actually – it's and, an, they, and Owen Wilson made a movie about him. Yeah, right? yeah. And Scott didn't get a single <laughs> dime for it, and he's still a little bitter about that. But uh, we ha- we're actually going to be launching Scott's podcast here in a few weeks. But just a great oh, guy cool. with an incredible story. And he, again, says that training – saved his life yeah. that training yeah, got him I, through it i agree i think fear school was the most high quality training that i had ever in the military um there's still skills that i can rely on or recall just from that training and it was only you know two weeks long and you got your ass beat but yep. it was definitely well well worth it yeah it's it's a great course and getting better every year as far as i've been told so let's talk about the other love of your life the c-130 now this yeah. This thing has been in production over 50 years. It's the absolute workhorse when it comes to aircraft for the military. It can, it, multiple configurations from cargo to refueling, close air support. The Air Force has an incredible gunship that saved countless lives. I'd love to know if you ever got a chance to fly one of those. But I mean, just your, again, your love affair with this incredible aircraft. It's Yeah. So I do love her with all my heart. I will say on a side note, the AC-130s. We used to always make fun of them that they were kind of like divas in country because in the stack, they would like demand 2000 feet in the stack. And we were like, why do you need 2000 feet? Like you're greedy. So we used to like make fun of them for yeah. that. But yeah, so the C-130, that's what was the most awesome is what you kind of alluded to, especially in the Marine Corps. Air Force, not so much because they have like very mission specific C-130. So they have ones that just do cargo or whatever. Well, we were kind of a jack of all trades, right? So the uh, Harvest Hawk that had the Hellfires on it, on the other side, we had a refueling pot. Mm-hmm. And so we could literally give somebody gas, which we did. We gave a, a Harrier gas when it's when their wingman actually crashed on landing. They needed to stay overhead mm-hmm. in orbit. But like, so we had a gunship that was giving gas. We could also run cargo because we had three pallet positions. But isn't this open. the Marine Corps in a nutshell, what you just explained? Yes, <laughs> yes it is. It's like we, we have the minimal amount of money, but we're going to do all of these missions and we're, and we're expected to do them all really, really well. Right. So, but yeah, that's what I loved about it is I didn't know when I was going on a mission in Afghanistan, am I going to be dropping leaflets? Am I going to be dropping people? Am I going to be dropping cargo? Am I going to be shooting munitions? Am I going to be giving gas. I didn't know what I was going to be doing 24 to 48 hours out. And that was what was so awesome is you were definitely on your game. You never got complacent and you knew you were making a difference, you know, and that's what, that's why I joined the military. 
Before this interview, I watched footage from 1963 where a C-130 made multiple touch and goes on an aircraft carrier to include mm -hmm. unassisted takeoffs and basically unarrested full stops. And I was just mm -hmm. like, and this was back in 1963. I was like, yeah. oh, I wonder if that's something Katie would want to try. What do you think? Hell no. There's a reason <laughs> that I, I joined the Marine Corps. I And, and I pick C-130s. I don't have to be on a boat. Like, you, no, I didn't join the Navy. I went to the Naval Academy and went the other way, right? Uh, Hell no do I want to be on a ship like that. No way. Yeah, it's but, understandable. Uh, do you ever get to do a JATO takeoff? It's it's where no. they slap the rockets yeah, and rocket it, it's for a short full yeah. takeoff. And that's probably, I don't yeah. even know if that's current anymore or, or ever it's used. Not. So, so yeah, the T model, which is our older version, the Fat Albert that I flew on the team was a T model, did have the JATO bottles. Unfortunately, all of the Blue Angels JATO bottles were destroyed in a hurricane. Oh, and they're wow. about $10,000 to refurb each one. And so the military was like, no, Marine Corps, Navy were like, no, we're not going to pay $10,000 just for you to make a pretty air show. There's only one unit that still uses them. And they're out of Schenectady, New York. They actually do the um, Antarctic mission. Gotcha. They use it to get yeah. off the ice. But our new J models, which are like the six bladed C-130s that you see, they have such better performing engines that they don't need it. They're able to get the performance that you would get out of a JATO just using their Gotcha. Their so again, to help folks out in the non-aviation sector out there listening, JATO is a jet assist takeoff. And it's basically they used to put two rockets to help yep. with a C-130 getting off in a short field. And then I had heard a story, and I don't know if you ever heard this. I haven't confirmed it, but apparently some guy in the Air Force got one of them, strapped it to his vehicle, and he was out in the dunes somewhere. And he thought it'd be really cool to turn into this ultimate drag racer. Well, he basically went into orbit and was never heard from again. And so, died. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. That yeah, sounds so. ridiculously. Somebody didn't know her in that. Putting a Jado on oh. a VW Beetle, probably not smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you touched on it a little bit with Fat Albert, but let's get right into you being the first female in the Blue Angels. And you were flying Fat Albert. Explain a little bit about Fat Albert also being an amazing C-130 and just your experience in the Blue Angels. I'm sure there was anybody that says respect is earned. Absolutely it is. You're not given respect. You earn it. Uh, you've earned it. You're at the Blue Angels and just that experience. It, it had to be amazing. Yeah. So I actually was the first female pilot on the team. There had been females on the team before, all in support roles. We also have a robust enlisted cadre as well that we did have women in for several years before me. But being the first female pilot, I actually didn't know when I rushed the team or when I, I was applying for the team. It wasn't until like my formal interview during finalist week that I got asked the question, like, how are you going to handle being the first female pilot? And my answer was, I didn't know I was. And so I really think that's the reason that I got the position is because I wasn't joining to be like, look at me, I'm famous. I want to be the first to do this. I just wanted to fly a really cool airplane and not get my wings taken away, you know, at 40 feet at 320 knots or whatever. <laughs> and so, yeah, Fat Albert is an amazing aircraft. She's just been replaced, if, mm -hmm. if nobody saw that news, but she's just been replaced with a new J model. So mine was the older T model. And it's such a cool airplane. And the way that we flew it was so unique because we don't have a glass cockpit in the T model. And so the pilot in the right seat not only makes radio calls, but is constantly calling out our altitude, airspeed, or angle bank so that the person in the left seat is constantly looking outside because when you're flying that low and that fast, you need to be constantly Well, it would have been monitored. nice if your instructor back in the day was doing that, right? Yeah, hell yeah. yeah. 
And so you're looking outside, you're clearing stuff, you know, you don't want to hit a, a tower or anything like that. And then our flight engineer was actually flying the throttle. So mm-hmm. if you think about that, a normal pilot flies the yoke and, and the throttles, but now you separated that out into two different people. Plus you have somebody calling out your stuff. And so you get so close with these other members on the airplane because you're operating as essentially one person, just really efficient one person with these three minds together. And so that was really cool. And then we also got to fly service members at every air mm-hmm. show that we went to. And so getting 50 people in the back was awesome. The best was when you would get those Navy dudes in white and then they'd like barf all over themselves. We had one dude who had oh, that's like, a low blow, but go ahead. like a, a monster or something. This was in Seattle. Yeah. He must have chugged a monster because he comes out and he's like bright green all down the front. <laughs> and of course, like, because we're Marines, we give so much shit to the Navy guys when they barf. But trust me, we had like, my husband and I were just talking about it because my husband also flew Fat Helber. We didn't get married until after we were off the team, but we had a, a he's a math star now who was sitting in the front seat and we were doing our practice remote show. So we were flying for like two hours, just over and over, not landing. And this poor guy got terribly airsick. He had a trash bag full. Oh. <laughs> we would do our comms over the intercom so people in the back could hear it too. And they would, you'd hear like, ascending whatever whatever <laughs> and it was just so loud <laughs> and it was like he was yelling in into the trash bag and it smelled like ravioli oh so, bad yeah, idea before a flight buddy well yeah, i think exactly. uh, you used to fly some of my brothers around too the leapfrogs which is the navy seal parachute yeah. team how was that experience working with those guys i can i know we can be kind of a pain in the butt sometimes hopefully it was a positive experience for the most part oh it was so positive Good. i loved those guys duncan hamilton was yep. the oic when i was there Duncan and I swam together at the Naval Academy. And so I I had that connection with them. It was an awesome, great experience. Every time we worked with them, extremely professional, but also like that SEAL kind of laid back mentality, but obviously very, very safe at everything that they did. And it was cool because I didn't, aside from shooting in Afghanistan, I, I didn't really get to work with the SEALs except for the leapfrogs. So getting kind of exposed to that community was, was really neat. I, I really enjoyed every single experience I had with them. All right. Well, you took your low blow on the Navy. We uh, I'll return it a little bit. We used yeah, to go please. up to the O Club in Miramar back when it was okay. Naval Air Station Miramar. Now uh, the Marines have it. But we would go up there and you would see these pilots in their tailored, custom tailored flight suits. They had never seen the inside of a cockpit. You could tell the flight suits that yeah. is because that was their O Club, the officer club flight yeah. suit. We'd show up. It was pretty obvious who we were. And we were young and cocky and all that. So we'd go in and we'd grab one of the patches and unvelcro it and be like, oh, that's cool. And then we'd put it on another part and and we'd start (laughs) playing with their patches and turn them upside down. I don't know how we didn't get in half a dozen fights, but uh, that was our our fun little way of reminding the pilots. Well, they weren't going to mess with you guys. I'm sure they already knew. Again, (laughs) we were young and cocky and, and it was fun, but it was pretty harmless at the same time. You spent some time as a flight instructor as well. So did you or did you spend? I I got my basic instructor pilot qualification. So I was able to do a couple flights there, but I moved to the Blue Angels before Mm -hmm. I went like full blown instructor. So, yeah. We touched on a little bit earlier, but transitioning from the military. I sleep like a baby at night. That was never my issue. What my problem with transitioning was is, oh, wow, this family that I trust with my life filled with exceptional people and my mission is gone. 
and combine that with, okay, now I'm in the real world where duty, honor, integrity, discipline is kind of difficult to find sometimes. And I had a real, real hard time with that. I don't know if what you'd want to share as far as any challenges you might have had with transition out of active duty. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you hit the nail on the head. You leave an organization where you know what you get, right? And obviously there's those individuals that don't live up to the ethos of the Marine Corps or in your case, the Navy. But for the most part, you know what you get. Everyone went through the same training. You know what you can expect from these people. You know they have integrity. You know that they're professionals. You all live by the same code. And then when you get out, you don't know what to expect from people, right? And you might give them the benefit of the doubt at the beginning, but that's going to bite you in the ass eventually, right? And so I, when I was transitioning out, I was looking for a company or, or a position that lived up to the same kind of idea of service, giving back. And so the, the company that I currently work for does a lot of volunteer work, donates a lot of money. So I, I felt like my morals kind of match this company's morals. What but, is the name of the company? We'd like to please promote it and let people know how yeah, they can get a hold of you. I know you do a lot of motivational speaking. Is that with this company as well? Yeah. So no, that's my side gig. My motivational speaking, you can find that at katieancook.com, which is my own little side gig that me and my husband started. So we do do motivational speaking. So if you want to have a stop by and say hi and give a few words of wisdom, we can definitely do that. But I, I work full-time for Salesforce, which is a tech company. You may, may have heard of this. They donate a lot of PPE for mm-hmm. um, California. And they're on a new initiative to plant a trillion trees. And so our CEO, Mark Benihoff, is really, really into that. And so the morals and the idea of giving back and all this stuff kind of aligned with mine. I would say one of the things that I'm still getting used to in the civilian side is lack of commander's intent. Right. Mm. And so in the Marine Corps, like, this is my intent. Now go forth and make the decisions to ultimately end end at that end state. And a lot of times it's either doesn't exist, right? They'll just say they don't give you any direction at all and you're flailing in the dark, or they are way micromanaging and you can't Mm -hmm. make any decisions. Right. And so that's what I had struggled with is, is I would make a decision when I wasn't allowed to yet, or I wasn't given any and, you know, trying to navigate a new career by myself was was kind of hard. But ultimately, I I transitioned back in October. So now I'm coming up on a year. I'm very happy with where I'm at. I'm still playing Marine Corps once in a while and I do the reserve gig. So that's nice that I haven't completely detached and I'm still able to wear the uniform, still able to serve Marines. And so, yeah, I will probably take this out to my 20 year mark and just stay in the reserve till then. Yeah. If you could have a conversation with Second Lieutenant Katie Higgins, just freshly commissioned, what would that conversation be like? I think I learned too late, or not too late. I think I, I think Second Lieutenant Higgins, I would say you need to take care of your Marines first. I think back then, coming out of the Naval Academy, where everyone tells you you're awesome, and I was a flight contract, right? And at TBS, there's hardly any enlisted. You have some that are instructors, but for the most part, you're, you're leading peers. Mm-hmm. I would say like leading your enlisted, learning how to take care of them, learning how to get them the resources that they need, whatever the problem is, that needs to be your first priority. And my dad did try to instill that in me at the beginning of my career. You know, he said, when you do your taxes, you don't put Naval Aviator on there. You put Marine Corps officer on there. And that's what needs to be first. Long before you put those wings on your chest, it says U.S. Marines on your uniform. 
and you need to take care of those Marines. And, and I think it just took me a little bit to get to that point. And so second Lieutenant Katie, you need to freaking take care of your Marines first, put your career aside, your own aspirations. You can deal with that after you get them the help and the development, the PME, the career progression that they need. That's what's important. That's awesome advice for anybody who's thinking about joining the military, especially if they're going to be in a leadership role. Take care of your people. They will take care of you. It's time, it time for, for to- the game. It's oh. time for a hypothetical survival world. Let me tell you a bit oh, about yeah. what we do here. I am going to drop you into a hypothetical survival situation, and you're going to have 10 events where you decide to do A or you decide to do B just like the old choose your own adventure books. If you choose the right one, you get plus 10 points. If you choose the wrong one, it's minus 10 points. Any question about the game before I give you your hypothetical survival situation. When you ask the question, Mm -hmm. can I ask clarifying information? Yes, you can. Okay. All right. So Katie, here is your hypothetical survival situation. You've just completed several speaking engagements in London and are returning home on a 747. You're over the Atlantic with about two hours of flight time remaining. You see the pilot emerge from the cockpit to use the lavatory when during this transition, several men leap up from their seats. One hurdles the drink cart and gains access to the cockpit while the others engage the pilot and crew outside of the cockpit. An air marshal eliminates two of these hijackers before one of them comes behind the air marshal and neutralizes him. All right, so here's the tally. One hijacker in the cockpit. Two hijackers dead. Two more still alive, now in the front with knives, one of whom has produced a briefcase and is busy at work with this briefcase. Any questions about your scenario? Where am I sitting? Middle of the jet. Aisle or window? You're in the aisle. In the aisle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Middle of the jet well, aisle, rookie, 747. Rookie move. So again, okay. right now, yeah. you've got one that's gained access to the cockpit, two more that are armed toward the front of the plane, and one of those two is messing around with a briefcase. briefcase. The air marshal has been neutralized. Okay. Okay, got here it. we go with your first event. Are you going to remain in your seat quiet and assess the situation? Or are you going to start communicating with nearby passengers? If by communicating, I'm far enough away from them in the front to hear me, correct? Yes. So I would say communicating slash game planning. I would probably do that. I would probably communicate. Absolutely. If we learned anything from 9-11, folks, yep. it's, I think it's very clear what these people's intention is. Good. It's not to go to Cuba and get a yep. million dollars. So that's a plus 10 right out of the gates. All right, Katie, here we go. Yes, you have game planned with nearby passengers and the decision is, okay, it's our let's roll moment. We're going to have to engage these two guys. Are you going to proceed to the front of the aircraft and try and attack them there? Or are you going to try and lure them to the rear of the aircraft and engage them there? You've got the choice of attacking them in their location at the front or try and lure them to the rear of the aircraft and engage them there. I would say rear of the aircraft. Try to lure them. You're trying to separate them. 
get him away from the front, which is where all the important stuff is to fly the airplane. So let's get into the back. You, na- you nailed it. Absolutely. If there's something in this briefcase that might be explosive in nature, the last place you want it is right next to the cockpit. Your best bet is to get it as far to the rear as possible, away from the wings, fuel, etc. So that's a plus 20. Okay, Please. so here we go. Okay, so again, it's let's roll time. You lure them to the rear of the aircraft. Are you going to rush these guys using hand-to-hand and numbers, or are you going to try and get improvised weapons before this engagement? Eh, they only have knives, right? This yeah. is true, but knives can... In a knife fight, the one who bleeds the least wins, but yeah, if you yeah, can limit okay. that as well, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. That's, that's a I, I would say, I mean... This is a weird question for me because you can get a weapon and then rush them with a lot of numbers. That's true. Weapons, That's right? true. So is it just hand to hand or is it with improvised weapons? I think if you if you can get a weapon, get a weapon. I think absolutely. And folks, listen to some yeah. of the things that are available within the area of where you're seating. You're sitting on a, a removable flotation seat cushion. That's an amazing shield. You can get things like laptops, belts. Shoes. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can get right there in the area. You can even roll up a magazine tight enough and it would be a great stabbing object. So maximize your effort and your odds when you're going against armed guys. So there's a plus 30, Katie. Keep it up. Okay. Okay. You've successfully engaged these guys. Do you subdue and detain them in the rear or do you open the hatch, the door, and throw the briefcase out? If you get this one wrong, I'm going to be incredibly disappointed. <laughs> Open the rear door or just try and detain and subdue them. You are at 33,000 feet. Yeah, so opening a door at 33,000 feet is not smart at all. You would suck out half the plane probably, so not not a good move there. So you'd Absolutely. Want to I was a little nervous there for a second, but yeah, massive yeah. depressurization at that kind of altitude. It's just like You'll a gigantic yeah, it's like a yeah. gigantic vacuum cleaner in there, isn't it? Yep. Okay, keep yep. it up. Your perfect score at a plus 40. Here we go, Katie. <laughs> so excellent. You decide, let's see. So what I would recommend is take, if you think something's explosive, place it against the door and then just start mashing lots of bags and anything you can do to try and create a buffer if for some reason there is an explosion. And if there is, the door will be the first thing to go. So here's the next thing you do. You've got the crew, or you've got most of the passengers in the rear of the plane. Do you gather equipment to include the air marshal's gun and try and establish communications, have some of the passengers try and get on phones and say, hey, here's our situation, or is it, no, it's go time, we're going right to the cockpit and we're going to try and make entry. So it's gathering equipment to include the air marshal's gun and try and get some of the passengers to get on their phones or the plane's phones and say, here's what's happening on this flight. Or is it, hey, we're not wasting any time. We're going right to the cockpit. No, I, th- I think you definitely need to communicate this situation because if you fail and you haven't given any heads up to anybody on the ground that this could be a flying giant missile just like September 11th. You're absolutely week. right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a really good chance that nobody knows what your situation is. Can't assume that, oh, FAA, they're on top of it. They know what's going on. They're scrambling jets. No. There's a good chance nobody knows. Take the time to try and give folks a heads up. Let them know the situation, the best of your ability, number of hijackers, status of the plane, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, plus 50, a perfect score. You're halfway through, all right? So stick it out here. Okay. All right. Several passengers were able to communicate and let the folks on the ground know this is the status of our flight. 
All right, so you slowly start heading to the front of the plane. The plane is still flying straight and level. Do you try and give first aid to the pilot who is slouched down in the lavatory that was attacked, or do you try and make entry? The flight is straight and level as of now. Obviously, you don't want the dude to bleed out. So I would say like you could give, you could take the second to put a tourniquet on or whatever you need to him before you make entry. Yeah, absolutely. If, yes, for several reasons. If you can help somebody, you want to try and help them. If you've got a little bit of time and it seems like you do, it's not like you're in a, a wicked 40-degree uh, down dive yeah. or anything like that. And this potentially be the guy that might have to land this plane if you regain control of the plane. So, yes, see what you can do trying to help him out. Okay, you look out the window. You see a fighter escort arrives on each wingtip. So they're well aware of what's going on. You have a fighter jet escort. The 747 now starts to dive. Is it time to make entry, or are you going to stand by and see what the uh, fighter escort's going to be able to do to help? No, because the fighter escort, the only thing they can do is shoot you down, right? So get in there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now now it is go time. It's time to get in there. Okay, you decided we're going to make entry. The guy who grabbed the air marshal's handgun, he's shaking like a leaf, all right? And you're saying to yourself, are we going to use this handgun for entry, or are we going to try and use some of those improvised weapons we used to attack the other hijackers previously? Again, you were heading into the cockpit. Yeah, I would say try to avoid the gun as much as possible because if you breach the whole of the airplane, again, it's just like opening that door and stuff getting sucked out. Additionally, if you're shooting like crazy, like this guy doesn't know what he's doing, you could hit uh, electronics or flight controls, anything like that. And now you're dead in the water anyway. You nailed it. You nailed it. All the reasons why handguns on planes with somebody who's scared and maybe not very well trained is probably a bad combination. Unfortunately, he refuses to give it up and he's like, I'm going in. Let's go in. Let's go in. So the pilot that you were giving first aid to, he is unconscious and non-responsive. He has gone down bad. So here's the decision you need to make. Are you going to be the first person through that cockpit door Or are you going to be more like the third person through that cockpit door? And this is all based on what have you done for a living? Yeah, I would say definitely third, just because I may have to land the airplane. And likely I would, if I was the first, you're probably a higher chance of being killed or injured or something. So if I'm third, there's a better chance that I'm going to live and then be able to land the airplane. Absolutely. You nailed it. And So, I mean, you have a very unique set of skills that there are probably a lot of the passengers that can fight fairly well. I doubt if anybody else is going to be able to do what you can do behind the controls of a 747. So that's absolutely right. So we're going to do something kind of unique on this. You have a perfect score of plus 90. And basically what I want to be able to do, and this is a little bit of a making a right turn compared to how we normally do this. I want you to finish up what you would do in this scenario. And there's no right or wrong answer i would just be curious all right it's a crazy scenario this is what i do to wrap it up but for all intents and purposes you just scored a perfect 100 points but here's here's the situation you have retaken control of the plane you slide into the seat behind the controls realize that some of the rounds from the handgun have destroyed the comms and you've got some unresponsiveness in the controls what do you think you would do in a situation like that as hypothetically outlandish as it is Okay, so you have your fighter escort next to you, right? And so we have procedures for being Nordo or not being able to talk, right? Not not being able to communicate. We also have codes that you can squawk for saying I was hijacked, I'm Nordo, all this stuff. So obviously go through that first. 
is so it's aviate, navigate, communicate is what they always tell you, right? So the first thing you want to do is figure out what is the performance of the airplane. So I'd sit in the cockpit, I'd move the controls full throw up and down to figure out what I have the capability of flying. If I don't have a lot, then I need to find an airport that has a really long runway, right? If I have full capability with the controls, then I have a little bit more leeway. And then navigate, where the hell am I? Try to figure out, do you have a map around? Is the glass cockpit showing where you are? You're not gonna be able to ask ATC to help you, so you gotta figure out where the hell you are. And then communicate. Okay, so how am I gonna communicate with no radio? Obviously the squawk that I just talked about, you could literally have somebody write on a notebook and push it up against the window to talk to those people that are next to you. Additionally, you can rock your wings, stuff like that, to give an indication to the fighters that you're at Nordo. And so at that point, they would likely move in front of you. You could follow them to an airport and then you would land as best you can. So I would say like, if you are in a situation where, hey, I need a long runway, that would be something that you could like communicate with a I need long runway, you know, and just put it up against the window. Because, I mean, they're, those fighters are such great wingmen that they could tuck in real close to be able to see something like that. Right. So that's likely what I would do at that Well, point. congratulations, Major Katie Cook. You are now in the rarefied air of a perfect score on Can You Survive This Podcast? Congratulations. Don't yell too loud. I don't want your kid to wake up. That's awesome, though. You did phenomenal. Hey, we do an AAR. You probably remember it from uh, your time in the military after action review. Anything that you learned from this uh, this time with us? Yeah, I like the idea of taking time to pause and getting other people involved, right? Because sometimes you, as a Marine, you're like, I'm the only one with training. I'm going to do this, right? And so, especially if you've been a military pilot, you know, everyone on the airplane is trained the same way as you. But utilizing those improvised weapons that you were talking about, utilizing the skills of possibly other people around you, that's going to be key to being able to survive something like this. I love it. That was, uh, I always wanted to be the first guy through the door. And one of the best, (laughs) one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was a young officer was, if you have the time, take the time. So I love, that's great. I cannot thank you enough. Again, congratulations to the new member of your family. And uh, we want to wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Hey, folks, the best way to support our show is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out our YouTube channel for video content of all of our episodes. So ring that bell to subscribe. And if you have any survival questions you want answered, just leave it in the comments so you can be a survivor, not a statistic. Thank you so much, Semper Fi. Hoo-yah. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti.